So it's November 6, 2015, Skype class from Hilo, Hawaii, and we're reading from Srimad Bhagavatam, Canto 3, Chapter 7, Further Inquiries by Vidura, Text 15. Vidura Uvacha, Vidura Uvacha, Sanchina Samshayamayam, Tavashyuktasina Vibo, Udayatrapi Bhagavan, Manome Sampa, Namome Sampradabati, Vidura Uvacha. Vidura said, Sanchina, cut off, Samshaya, doubts, Mayam, unto me, Tava, your, Shuksha Ashina. By the weapon of convincing words. By the weapon of convincing words. Vibo. Vibo. Oh my lord. Oh my lord. Ubayatra api. api. Both in God and in the living entity. Both in God and the living entity. Bhagavan. Bhagavan. O powerful one. Manaha. Mind, may, my, sampradavati, perfectly entering. Translation and purport by Srila Prabhupada. Vidura said, O powerful sage, my lord, all my doubts about the Supreme Personality of Godhead and the living entities have now been removed by your convincing words. My mind is now perfectly entering into them. Purport by Srila Prabhupada. The science of Krishna or the science of God and the living entities is so subtle that even a personality like Vidura has to consult persons like the sage Maitreya. Doubts about the eternal relationship of the Lord and the living entity are created by mental speculation in different ways. But the conclusive fact is that the relationship of God and the living entity is one of the predominator and the predominated. The Lord is the eternal predominator, and the living entities are eternally predominated. Real knowledge of this relationship entails reviving the lost consciousness to this standard, and the process for such revival is devotional service to the Lord. By clearly understanding from authorities like the sage Maitreya, one can become situated in real knowledge, and the disturbed mind can thus be fixed on the progressive path. Vidura Uvacha Sanchina Samshayomayam Tava Sukshashina Vibo Ubayatrapi Bhagavan Manome Sampradavati. Vidura said, O powerful sage, my Lord, all my doubts about the Supreme Personality of Godhead and the living entities have now been removed by your convincing words. My mind is now perfectly entering into them. So, Samshaya, doubts. What do we mean by doubts? We can think of doubts as a lack of mental or intellectual understanding. You know, somebody says something and it doesn't make sense to us. We, it doesn't 
fit with our idea of logic or it doesn't fit with our experience or we find it uncomfortable in some way it's scary to us it seems like the results of that wouldn't be very good so these are doubts and our doubts of course uh, the problem with our doubts is they determine whether or not we engage on a particular path you know before I do something I need to be convinced that I want to do it I have to be persuaded so before I enroll in a college I have to be convinced that enrolling in this college is going to benefit me that enrolling in college altogether and enrolling in this college many years ago when I was running Gurukula we had a program both for kids who wanted to go to university and for kids who didn't so I had this one parent Indian man who himself was working on his master's degree and he came and complained and said you should have all your kids going to college you shouldn't say if you go to college you should say when you go to college so he wanted his kid not to have any doubt that college that going to university getting a university degree was absolutely beneficial for everyone and I said well I don't agree that it's beneficial for everyone for some people it's beneficial for other people it's not beneficial so that didn't that didn't sit well with him because he had no doubt that you had to have everybody had to have a degree so in homes where the kids are told when you go to college then the child generally grows up with no doubt yes this is essential I have no doubt and then which college so you all right well if I go to the top colleges and I have no doubt but this other one I'm not sure maybe maybe not right or people decide are they going to marry someone like nowadays how people a province says marriage is now an imagination so people live together without marriage and I had I know uh, one person who they've been living together he's been living with his girlfriend for many years now and when we say to him well why don't you marry her he says oh I still have some doubt you know six seven years of living together I still have some doubt <laughs> so not enough doubt to stop living with her but enough doubt that he doesn't want to marry her right? so doubt prevents us from making a decision or it prevents us from making a decision wholeheartedly right like this man he's he's made a decision to live with this girl but he's not going to do it wholeheartedly he's not going to make a full commitment he's making a a partial commitment and of course unless one makes a full commitment to a path one doesn't get the full result of that path I was reading about how that many vegetarians still eat some meat even up to once a day so people who are vegetarians for health reasons are going to tend to say I'm a vegetarian but they'll eat this thing with meat this thing with meat whereas those who are vegetarians for ethical reasons tend to be much more strict about what they eat so if someone says I'm a vegetarian for health reasons that means they still have some doubt so they're taking to it but not completely right I met one many years ago I met uh, one gentleman he was teaching a course I was taking oh yes I'm vegetarian but I eat fish <laughs> so doubt prevents us from going full just the other day we were listening to one talk by uh, Maharaj visiting from originally from Lithuania and he was saying if we really believe that Krishna is the supreme personality of Godhead then we'd be always engaged in his service so this always is, is a strong component of Krishna's instruction in the Bhagavad Gita 
So my godbrother Gopravindapal Prabhu, before there was computerized databases, he did a thorough search in Prabhupada's books, what Srila Prabhupada's most often repeated instruction. And he came to the conclusion, of course, unsurprisingly, that one of them was to chant Hare Krishna. And the adverb most commonly associated with chant Hare Krishna, when I ask people, I get different answers. Uh, but the adverb was always. Always. So, uh, always. All the time. So if we look at Bhagavad Gita, then Krishna will talk about being always engaged. Right? In Bhagavad Gita 8.14, he says, some, a yogi who's always engaged, who remembers him constantly. In 9.14, he says, anyone who constantly, satsatam kirtayantomam, always engaged. And in 9.22, ananya chintayantomam, Again, he says, Yoga Kshema Vaham Yaham, I give supply the needs of those who are constantly engaged. Right? In 10.10, also, Teshtam Satatayuktanam, Satatayuktanam, someone who's always worshipping. And 12.2, he says, the best yogis are always engaged in devotional service. Right? So those in 3.31, he says that someone who always follows his teachings with faith, which is uh, reiterated in 1857, said then he's liberated from all karma and in 12.14 he says my dear devotee who's always satisfied and in 10.9 much to tell my guitar pranam bodhiyam tas prasvam katiyam tas tamam nityam tushanti charamantita nityam always so the problem with doubt is it prevents this always because we're holding something back there's something we're not sure about so if we find this, you know, always remember Krishna, never forget him. This is the essence of the practice of bhakti yoga. What do you do in bhakti yoga? Oh, we always remember Krishna and never forget him. How do you do that? We chant Hare Krishna, we offer vegetarian food to Krishna, we worship Krishna, we read the Bhagavatam. But those are all for the purpose of always remembering Krishna and never forgetting him. And not only do they cause us to always remember Krishna and never forget him, but they are symptoms of one who is always remembering Krishna and never forgetting him. However, when we have doubts, we can't do it. When we have doubts, we remember Krishna a little bit, and then we stop. So the question is asked frequently. Uh, all over the world, I get people asking the question, how can I remember Krishna always? Why, why, don't, I, why don't I steady? Why do I go up and down, up and down? Sometimes I have faith, sometimes I don't, sometimes... I chant 16 rounds with full attention and meditation. Other times, I'm completely inattentive. Uh, sometimes I'm very equipoise. Sometimes I'm very angry or very lusty. Or, why? Because there's these doubts. I was just hearing a lecture yesterday where Srila Prabhupada was saying, so just surrender to Krishna. He said, what is the difficulty? Just do it. He said, it's a matter of a minute's. Just always think of me, always again. Always think of me, become my devotee, worship me, offer your obeisances to me, and that way you will come to me. And he said, what is the problem? Why don't we just do it? Of course, many times we think we do it. You know, when I was hearing that, I thought, well, uh, well I thought I did that a long time ago when I was, you know, 17 years old, 18 years old, and I... I walked in the door of a Hare Krishna temple and said, here I am with a small suitcase of possessions and I'm, I'm surrendered. I'm, I have no doubts. 
But actually, uh, I was full of doubts. And in time, one understands, oh, I haven't really surrendered. I'm holding back uh, this and that and the other thing. In Nectar Devotion, Radharani's friends say to her, uh, why are you quibbling with Krishna once you've sold an elephant? You don't argue about the price of the rod to control the elephant. But that is often what we do. You know, we've already sold Krishna the elephant and we're arguing about the price of the rod, or maybe we've only sold him the rod and we're still arguing about the elephant. And so we have these doubts. And the result is that our progress in Krishna consciousness is slow and halting. And, of course, that's expected. It's a gradual process, and why is it gradual? I remember my godbrother Pragosh Prabhu asking this of Satsupra Maharaj, why is it gradual? And he said, you know why it's gradual. Because we are holding back. You know, if you've ever walked with a, a child or an animal that was resisting you, they're pulling in the other direction. My father had a dog, and I, it was my job to take the dog for a walk every day after school, and the dog would often pull in the other direction. And, and one time, it, the dog pulled so much and pulled me down the hill and then stopped, and I tripped over the dog, fell on my left arm and broke it. And so our doubts are doing that to us. They're pulling us in another direction. You know, then I'm just lying on the road with a broken arm waiting for someone to rescue me. And this is what happens in our bhakti. If these doubts are not uh, sanchina, china, chindi, chindi, cut him up, cut him up, like the demon said to Prahlad, to cut up these doubts. We often have this analogy of cutting, using some kind of sword or cutting instrument to cut the doubts the sword of knowledge. Cut down this tree, Krishna tells Arjuna, with the weapon of knowledge. And then we become very frustrated in bhakti until these doubts are eradicated. And some doubts may take years to eradicate and some of them may persist in a very subtle form. Like here Prabhupada saying, the science is so subtle, even Vidura has to consult with someone to get all of his doubts eradicated and we were discussing that some of his key doubts is how did we get here in the first place? How are we entangled? Why is the living entity entangled in this world? So how do we free ourselves from doubt? I mean, that is the problem. That really is the problem. We're not convinced. What are we not convinced of, by the way? What is it we're not convinced of? We can say, oh, I'm not convinced of a particular philosophical point. Just like Vidura asking these questions, you know, how does the jiva become entangled, which is the big philosophical question. What, how did I get from the spiritual world to here? Hmm. So we can think of doubts like that, but our, our real doubt is something a little different. And Srila Prabhupada talks about that here in this purport, that the relationship between Krishna is that he's the predominator and we are the predominated. That is really what we have a doubt about. We're, we're not convinced that I will be happy by being predominated. And this tendency not to want to be predominated is visible throughout the world. Our recent history is a history of predominated groups rising up against the predominator groups. So we had the governments rise up against the church in Europe. They basically said, oh, we're, we're going to run things. Then you had the business people rise up against the governments 
in communist countries, you had the workers rise up against the business people and the governments. Even in the uh, democratic countries, you have the labor unions. The women rose up against the men. The children have risen up against the teachers and the parents. Uh, marginalized groups like homosexuals, etc., they've uh, risen up against the, the uh, heterosexual society. Various races, oppressed races, you know, the blacks rise up against the whites, or used to be the Irish against the English, the Catholics against the Protestants, whatever. Whatever group is in particular power, if you're a member of the marginalized group, if you're predominated, the tendency is to want to rebel. The tendency is not to want to submit, but to want to rebel, to find fault in your predominator. And of course, in the material world, especially in the Kali Yuga on this planet, the predominators are full of fault, so it's not very hard to find reasons to rebel against them. The religious authorities are full of faults, the government is full of faults, business is full of faults, the men are full of faults, the parents are full of faults, the teachers are full of faults, so, and, and so forth and so on. It, it's, it's quite easy to say, well, there's so many faults, ocean of faults. And therefore, why should I submit? And this, this view of why should I submit is coming from, uh, originally, our rebellion against God. You know, in traditional societies, and this is still true in some parts of the world, although it's decreasing everywhere, to be civilized, you had to be submissive to your authority. There was a strong hierarchy. You loyal to your government, faithful to your husband, you know, obedient to your parents, and so forth, regardless of their faults. And, and why? Because it's a, a basic measure of obedience to God. Of course, nowadays I find it sadly funny that people, uh, right-wing people, they want to force subordination without the qualification of the predominator. But anyway, this is the thing we have our main doubt about. We don't really envy Krishna's freedom because we, as, the, as a liberated soul, we also have freedom. We don't envy Krishna's happiness because a liberated soul also has unlimited happiness, as Krishna says in the sixth chapter of the Bhagavad Gita. We don't envy Krishna's knowledge as when we're connected with him, we share in his knowledge. But what he has that we do not have is that he is the predominator. Now, of course, a Shaktivesh avatar, Jiva, a Jiva empowered as God, can uh, be a predominator in God's name, but as a predominator, they are always a servant. They are always a servant. You know, there's this discussion, who should be called master? And, and I said, well, nobody. <laughs> Only God is the master. We are all the predominated. And someone said, oh, that's my Avad philosophy, which I thought was rather fascinating. And here we see in this verse that Maitreya is being called names that are generally reserved for the predominator. So if this was a live class, I'd ask you which they are. So before I say, why don't you look at the verse, see if you can find the two words in this verse that are usually applied to God, but here are being applied to Maitreya. So probably the first one that jumps out is Bhagavan. And as we know, Bhagavan is sometimes used in the Bhagavatam to refer to any great personality. Indra, Narada are sometimes called Bhagavan. We have the word Vibho also. Vibho means the great. So the, both of these are words that apply to God. I mean, even in English, 
So the word Lord means God, but it's also a term, a title of respect for nobility. And Prabhupada talks about speaking with Lord Jetland, how one of his godbrothers talked with Lord Jetland. And Jaidor Tamaraj likes to make the funny point that we say Lord Jagannath and Lady Subhadra, which are British royalty terms. Uh, Lady Subhadra is not coming, it's not something translated from the Sanskrit. Anyway, the point is when someone has a position representing God, actually any authority in the world is representing God to some extent, or supposed to be representing God, and is, has that position uh, due to the grace of God. But someone who's actually representing God, like Maitreya, is sometimes called by the titles of God. So in that sense, you could say that the jiva can also be a predominator. You could say that Maitreya here is also a predominator, but he doesn't see himself as a predominator. He sees himself as a servant. Das, 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 anudas. Srila Prabhupada, sometimes he was talking about Varnashram, and he was talking about the four classes of people, and then one reporter said, so I guess you must be first class, Prabhupada said, no, I am fifth class because I'm serving even fourth class persons. So the devotee always sees like that, I am the lowest of the low, and whatever position that I have as a predominator, there's the famous lecture Bhakti Siddhanta Sarasvati gave about guru, guru sitting on a seat, and a higher seat, and so forth. So people don't understand this. You know, I remember my first contact with Krishna consciousness. I was very hesitant to take shelter of any spiritual master. I thought, you know, if, if you're a spiritual master, you must be very arrogant. And I see that that mood is, is prevalent even today, that people will say, well, if you want to be a guru, the very desire to be a guru must be a disqualification for being a guru. So it's kind of like saying, you know, if you want to preach Krishna consciousness, your desire to preach Krishna consciousness and take responsibility is a disqualification. But really, uh, the desire is to be more of a servant. Of course, there are demigods who want to be predominators in God's name because they want to be predominators, the Sakama devotees. But among the Nishkama devotees, they are willing to take a position of so-called predomination, but they do it as the predominated they do it as the predominated. They see themselves as simply a servant, simply an instrument, as Krishna told Arjuna, you be an instrument in this fight. So the point of this is that the one thing the jiva never is, is the predominator. Even if the jiva appears to be a predominator, they are not so. It is the one thing, we say, it is the one primary difference between the jiva and God that the jiva is never the predominator, the jiva is never the controller. And this is, of course, the jiva can be a controller out of love. We have the Damodar prayers. Mother Yasoda is tying up Krishna out of love. You know, Radharani says, Krishna, don't come in out of love. The cowherd boys say, Krishna, I'm defeating you out of love. But that's not actually predominating. It's simply a loving exchange, like the father allows the tiny child to defeat him in a game. So this is where we have our real doubt. Our real doubt is, can I be happy being predominated? I can only be happy if I'm the predominator. And I want to have control, this world control. I want to have control over my own life. We use the, the sense of autonomy, which the psychology recognizes as a very strong human need. 
you know, if I don't have autonomy, if I can't decide, Swarat or Swaraj, I want to be the king of my own life. I want to decide my own destiny. Uh, Frank Sinatra had that song. You know, I, I did it my way. <laughs> I want to be known as I did it my way. I want to be the captain of my ship and the master of my soul. I want to decide my own destiny. Nobody's going to tell me what to do. And of course, if we think about it a little bit, we will see that we're not very good captains of our own ship. We're not very good masters of our own destiny. We don't make very good decisions. If we made very good decisions, we wouldn't have a 50% divorce rate now that uh, arranged marriages have been stopped in most of the world. Uh, people are, yeah, I'm going to find my own person, fall in love, make my own decision. 50% divorce rate. We used to have, you know, people were trained in a career as a child, as a, as a young teenager by their guru and their parents. They'd look at the astrology, they'd look at them, they'd train them in their career, and it would be a lifetime career. And nowadays people decide themselves, what do I want to do? And they're changing careers so many times in their life. Right? Or just all of the suffering that we have. All of us have some suffering in our life, mental, physical, financial, relational, etc., all that suffering is the result of our bad decisions, either in this life or in the previous lives. So we made decisions, I'm the predominator, I'm the controller, and Krishna says, okay. <laughs> and the result is suffering. It's simply suffering. So one would think that we would have doubts about ourselves being the controller and that we'd be very open to the idea of being predominated but we still persist in holding on to this idea that I'm going to be the controller. So that's the essence of our doubt. The essence of our doubt is not, oh, Srila Prabhupada said such and such thing about black people, or, you know, or, or how did the soul come to the material world? And that's not really the, the thing that's holding us back. The thing that's really holding us back is, I don't want to be controlled. I don't want to be predominated. So how do we get rid of these doubts? And we're going to look at, uh, not only how we get rid of spiritual doubts, but in general, how are doubts in anything eradicated? So they're eradicated either externally or internally. We can talk about there's like an external authority and an internal authority. So uh, research shows that people change their mind, resolve their doubts, decide on a different course of action, primarily in two ways. One is by hearing from some person that they respect and trust, and the other is through stories. We may have the idea that people's doubts become resolved through philosophy and through facts, through logic, through philosophy, and through facts. However, uh, at least the research doesn't back that up. And I think in our everyday experience, it's kind of funny that we often try to resolve others' doubts, or maybe even our own doubts, through philosophy, logic, and facts. But I think most of us have experienced that doing a resolution of doubts in that way is often just frustrating. You know, you, yeah, you have somebody that you're, you're arguing with, and you've got logic, and you've got facts, and you've got philosophy, and nobody changes their position. In fact, the research shows that as more, the more you bring up facts and logic and philosophy, the more entrenched the other side gets in their position. Strange, huh? Maybe that's why politicians, advertisers, 
don't use logic and facts and philosophy to convince people because it, it doesn't work. It, in fact, it tends to create more of a polemic. Again, I think we've all experienced this. You know, a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. That facts and logic and philosophy do not change the will. And it's the thinking, feeling, willing. It's the willing that has to change. It has to go to feeling. Thinking, if you just stay on the thinking platform, certainly logic and philosophy and facts are important in removing doubts. In fact, I would say in many cases, or most cases perhaps, they're necessary. But they are rarely, if ever, sufficient. They're not enough. They're not enough because the facts and philosophy and logic don't engage the feeling and willing. They don't produce an actual change in, in action, an actual change in heart. And the fact of this phenomena is one reason why Prabhupada talks about how the doubts are created, he says in this purport, by mental speculators. That simply remaining on that platform actually creates more doubts. I had this experience when I was in secondary school and high school. I was a member of the debating team. And one of the things that I learned from being engaged in competitive debate is that nothing is ever resolved in that way. Whatever argument you make, there's a counter-argument to that. Prabhupada said every weapon has a counter-weapon. Chaitanya Mahaprabhu used to like to play like this. He would present an argument when he was a young, young boy. He'd present an argument, then defeat it, then defeat his defeat, then defeat his defeat, his defeat. And it, it, you never come to a resolution. You can't find truth in that way. Therefore, people who study even the Shastras, Vedeshadurlabham, they can't understand. Just to study in a scholarly way, you never have the doubts removed. So th that's not the way. The way is by authorities and by stories. And among authorities, there's two kinds of authorities. What is called the authority and the anti-authority. So if you think about a person being convinced to give up smoking, an authority would be a doctor. An anti-authority would be a former smoker who's dying of lung cancer. And we find both kinds of authorities in the Shastras. Maitreya is definitely in the authority realm here, and who is convinced Vidura. And anti-authority would be people like the hunter Migrari. They're an anti-authority. There's somebody who's, who's fallen and came to Krishna consciousness. And they're also very convincing. In fact, many times we're convinced more by the anti-authorities than by the authorities. So there's, you know, there's so many stories in the Shastra, not only of saints, but also of demons. How the demons get killed or the demons get converted. We have Durvasa and Ambarish. And the behavior of Durvasa is as convincing as the behavior of Ambarish. Or the uh, Rikasura, who's finally destroyed by the clever words of Lord Vishnu. So these are anti-authorities. But this is uh, one main way that we're convinced. And materially, we become convinced because we have faith in them. Of course, faith is the beginning of spiritual life, adyushraddha. Everyone has faith in something. Faith is the opposite of doubt. And something that we have faith in, some person particularly that we have faith in. Advaiti Bhakti begins with this faith. Faith in some authority or anti-authority that I'm physically with or faith in one of these authorities that I'm reading about in the Shastra 
And it's really that faith in a person. Many years ago, I guess about 15 years ago, I was doing a lot of research into fundraising and charities. And the point made over and over again is that people don't give to a cause, they give to a person. That no matter how great the cause is, uh, they're really giving to a person. They're usually giving to the person who's asking. Or they're giving to some person in the cause. And many charities try to make their, their causes very personal. You know, adopt this kid, adopt this cow, or here's a story of one woman traveling two miles a day to get water, or so forth. Uh, so we're, we're, we give ourselves to a person, not to a concept. And then we're also convinced by stories, and we don't have time to get into this in depth, but the science of how stories convince us is just fascinating. And we see, of course, that the bulk of the Shastra, especially now in the Kali Yuga, it's stories. The Bhagavad Gita is in the context of a story. The Bhagavatam, the story of the sages at Namasharanya, the story of Maharaj Purkit, or here the story of Vidura and Maitreya. And if... Um, Empirical research shows that stories within stories within stories are the most convincing, and we find exactly uh, this is done in the Bhagavatam. So why do stories remove our doubts? Because stories give us a vicarious experience. When we hear or read or listen to a story, it's almost as if we are experiencing what we're hearing, reading, or listening to. And such can be shown even by the brainwaves while we're engaged in stories. And so if the characters in the stories have an experience, it's almost as if we have that experience. And we become convinced, although we can say stories are an external convincer, still they give us a very strong internal experience. Uh, stories also tend to be convincing because they bypass this false ego of I'm the controller. There's so much fun. There's lots of evidence that we learn more when we're having fun. And we all enjoy stories. By enjoying the stories, we relax our false ego. And we agree to kind of go along for the ride. We agree to let the story taker take us where he or she wants to go. And therefore, we, we seamlessly and painlessly arrive at the destination and the experience of the story. Of course, we love stories because Krishna loves stories. Because Krishna is full of lila. He likes to be in stories, he likes to hear about stories, and so forth. Uh, there are many other reasons why stories will remove our doubts, and we are advised, of course, to become absorbed in the stories of Krishna and the stories of the great devotees also. In fact, we could say the stories of the great devotees are more important, and we could even say that the stories of the devotees, like Dhruva Maharaj, who starts off as a materialistic person and becomes a Sakama devotee, are very important because then we go on the journey with him, so to speak. And by going on the journey with him, we experience faith. Then there's the internal sources of freedom from doubt, and these are virtual experiences and actual experiences. So virtual experiences is stories, which is one in one sense an external means of removing doubt. Uh, you'd say this sort of on the border of the two. But one example of a virtual experience is there was a group that was traveling and giving seminars pushing for nuclear disarmament. So they would have small gatherings of people and they would bring a metal bucket and then they would have small metal balls, uh, like ball bearings. So they would drop a ball bearing into the metal bucket and they would say, 
this is one nuclear warhead. And it makes a big noise, a big clattering noise. And then they would say, here's the nuclear bombs that were dropped in World War II. And then they put in two ball bearings. It makes a little more noise. Here's the number of warheads that existed in 1950. And then they put in some more. And, you know, gradually they increase. And they say, here's the number of nuclear warheads that are in the world today. And then they pour in all these uh, small ball bearings that makes this deafening sound. And then people become convinced, wow, we really have a problem. We really have a problem. So this is a virtual experience. In Krishna consciousness, we get virtual experiences when we have shadow or reflective ecstasies. They're not really our ecstasies. They're not really coming from our advancement. They're really coming from the advancement of somebody we are with, generally in physical proximity, but it can be also uh, through hearing or through reading. So we're having a virtual experience. We're not really experiencing it ourselves, in, in a sense. But it's as if we're experiencing it. We have some kind of a simulation of an experience. Hmm. And then the ultimate way of freedom from doubt is actual experience. So we become convinced by authorities, whether they're whether we categorize them as authority or anti-authority, we become convinced by stories, which are one way of having some sort of an internal virtual experience. But ultimately, we're only going to be convinced by an actual experience. There's just no other way to become free from our doubt. We experience it and we say, oh, now I know an actual personal experience is the only ultimate proof. One could say that it is a subjective proof in that I can't fully share my experience with you. So if I have an actual experience, that can help with your doubt if you accept me as some form of an authority. It can help you with your doubt if I tell you a story about it. It can help you with your doubt if, I'm, if you get in the shadow of my experience. But ultimately, it has to become yours. Ultimately, you can't be riding on, on me. Just like we see sometimes in India, people on a bicycle will hold on to the back of a motorized vehicle, and they're getting a ride like that. But that's not... Uh, ultimately, we have to fly our own plane. I was just thinking about that this morning. Ultimately, we have to fly our own plane. As Prabhupada says, the guru, the shastra, they give so much instruction on the ground, but we have to fly our own plane. Just that we're in the sangha of devotees, just that we have a bona fide guru, just that we're reading the shastra, we, each of us, has to agree to be the predominated fully. We have to fully, completely accept it without a trace of remaining doubt. And of course, that idea that it has to be pure kind of scares us, isn't it? We say, well, I want all the benefits of Krishna consciousness. I want to be in the spiritual world as one of Krishna's associates and still hold on to my doubt. But that's not even logically sensible because the spiritual world is a world where Krishna is the absolute predominator. Someone who has even a slight tinge of a doubt as to whether or not Krishna is the absolute predominator if such people were in the spiritual world, then it wouldn't be the spiritual world. When Krishna comes to the material universes, uh, there are many such people there in Krishna's pastimes. 
uh, people who still have various degrees of doubt, they're even demons in Krishna's pastimes. But to go to the original, to be in the original spiritual world, one has to have no doubt. And of course, if one has no doubt, even here in this world, then uh, one will experience that one is in the spiritual world. One will not experience being in the material world. The way of freedom from all miseries is to become completely free of these doubts. So when we understand the harm that our doubts are causing us, it's something like, you know, someone who has cancer and then they want them to be 100% cancer-free, you know. If we still have these little cancerous doubts running around in our bloodstream, so our progress is very halting. It's very halting. It's, 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 we're pouring water while lighting a fire, the analogies, trying to cook with smoke, and trying to row your boat while you still have in the anchor. You know, all these analogies, how our doubts are holding us back. So certainly we want to resolve our doubts by hearing from authorities, hearing from people that we respect. And by the way, the person I respect might not be the person you respect. And it's not that I have to force upon someone else the authorities that I respect. But a person needs to hear from an authority that they respect to absorb ourselves in the stories of those who are free from doubt. Uh, the other day there was somebody distributing things very, very critical of me. And I was talking with a devotee, how do I deal with it? And this devotee said, meditate on the devotee's who were dishonored and criticized, the great pure devotees like Haridas Thakur and, and Jesus Christ, and you know, the people who, who were criticized and dishonored, and how did they deal with it? Meditate on their stories. And I found that to be very helpful. So to be absorbed in those stories, you know, how did somebody, if you're going through poverty, meditate on Kolavicha Sridhar or Sudama Brahmana, right? If one's going through disease, meditate on Vasudev the leper. And these stories that of, of anybody who's resolved the doubts that we're, the particular flavor of doubts that we're struggling with. And strive to have experiences. Strive for the virtual experiences, certainly. But ultimately, we need to strive for having the direct experiences. Being open and saying, okay, Krishna, I'm going to, I'm going to take this risk to have a direct experience. I'm going to open myself up to a direct experience. When, when Krishna starts coming to us with some direct experience that we embrace it, that we don't push it away. So we want to surface these doubts and destroy them. We want to be honest, at least with ourselves, about what doubts we have. It's very difficult to do that. We tend to want to deny our doubts, and, but we want to accept this is my doubt and allow it to be cut to pieces. So I can't uh, say too long today, but um, questions, comments? Can you hear me? Yes. Um, how does um, removing doubt, which is, you know, makes you feel good, how is that harmonized with the crucial quality of humility? I'm not sure I understand your question. How does removing doubt, which makes you feel good, harmonize with humility? Do you mean if you feel good, you can't be humble? No, I'm just, you know, yeah, kind of humility is you, you're feeling low. And, and I guess it, it's um, not about so much about knowledge, which doubts are about. But it, it seems 
there's a tendency to as you you know it's like freedom from doubt is like an accomplishment mm. but it's you know it's mercy too and i don't know it just i, I could see where they're they could kind of be at cross purposes huh. so when i become free from doubt i realize i'm the predominated Right. What am I doubting? I'm doubting whether or not I'm the predominated. I'm doubting. That's the essence of my doubt. My, the essence of my doubt is not, did we go to the moon? Or are there huge eagles that fly from one planet to another? Or can I really accept what Srila Prabhupada said about this or that? that? That's not the essence of my doubt. The essence of my doubt is, am I really the predominated? Can I really be happy being the predominated? Can I really accept that Krishna is the supreme controller? That's really the essence of my doubt. And when that's removed, then I become happy being the predominated, which is the essence of humility. Humility is on the predominated. Jai. Would it be fair to say that freedom from doubt does not necessarily require absolute certainty. And I give you an example. Um, I have no doubt that today the sun will continue to rotate through the sky and around 6.20 it will set over the ocean. And I don't know that for sure, but we've certainly seen it in the past. And I have I have complete faith that the sun will continue to do that, but, but I don't have absolute certainty. It's conceivable that the sun could stop up at noon and, and, and never move again. So it's so, interesting what you said. You use words like complete, and then at the same time you said it's not complete. It was kind well, of interesting. You're saying I have complete faith, but I'm not saying no, I have, some, I have, I have complete. I'm free from doubt, but I don't have absolute certainty. So the reason I guess I'm saying that is, I feel, I hope, I, I hope I could say this with honesty that I that I have no doubts about this process. That if I follow this process, it's going to work. That Prabhupada says this is not a bluff, and I've experienced enough along the way to be convinced. Wow, this is working. Um, my my attachments are I'm becoming free from attachment. Real knowledge is is awakening in my heart. I, I'm beginning to feel uh, a, a quality of life like I've never experienced before. But yet I haven't seen Krishna, you know, dancing before me yet. So I have faith. I, I have. I have. I have no doubt that if I can do this process, it's going to work. But I don't have. I can't say that certainty. So it seems that it would be fair to say that to be free from doubt doesn't require absolute certainty. Uh, I'd say. I'd say one can be free from doubt at one's place. You know, my my level of certainty at this point is in direct relationship to my feeling from doubt. But if we're not experiencing Krishna Prana, then by definition, there's something that we're still holding back. Because Krishna Prana is our natural condition. If I'm not holding on to anything at all, then Krishna Prana will be there for me instantaneously. It doesn't have to be this gradual process. So if I'm holding something back, 
why am I holding something back? Because I have some doubt about it. I have some doubt about giving it up. And the stuff that we're holding back as we progress is more and more and more and more and more subtle, as Prabhupada says in this scripture. So for, as, just for an example, uh, just the other day, I can understand that something that I thought was bhakti was really a desire for mukti. And I hadn't seen that before. So these, these doubts become surfaced as we go through the process. We start to see that, oh, I actually still have a doubt about this. I mean, I remember it was, it was many years ago, I was in Delhi, and the devotee I was with uh, quoted from Bhakti Siddhanta about Krishna being the transcendental autocrat, and I felt the rebellion in my heart. You know, my initial emotional reaction was rebellion. And it astonished me. I thought, well, I accepted that Krishna was a transcendental autocrat years ago. <laughs> and, and Krishna was saying, well, no, you don't really. There's a part of you that doesn't want me to be the autocrat. How dare he be the autocrat? I'm in a democratic country. We don't have autocrats. You know, so there's... If we take it as a given that this um, is explained nicely in Madhurya Kadambani, where Vishnu Chakravitaka says that we may protest and say, well, I'm not committing any offenses. But he says the evidence is our state of consciousness. So if I'm not in a state of consciousness where I'm seeing Krishna at every moment, where uh, I'm, I'm experiencing unlimited ecstasy where tears are flowing from my eyes like torrents. If that's not my constant state, if that's more my uh, occasional state, then I'm holding on to something. And I'm, I'm holding on to something, it's because I have some hesitancy. And if I have some hesitancy, there's something that I'm not yet convinced of. And again, it may be very, very subtle. And there, there are weeds that look just like the bhakti creeper. So what I've seen in my own life and the life of people that I deal with on a close level is that most of our doubts come disguised as bhakti. And some of them we may have been nurturing for decades, thinking that we're doing something that's bhakti. I mean, sometimes you can see this in a very gross form in somebody else. You know, I, I, I meet devotees sometimes who think that offending other devotees is their devotional service. It's, it's interesting. They actually believe that. They really, really believe that their service to Prabhupada is to offend the other devotees. It's just amazing. But each of us has ridiculous doubts like that and ridiculous weeds that to someone who doesn't have them, those particular doubts, they look at us and say, how absurd is that? So if you, I think if you take it as a given that... I'm progressing nicely, but I'm still not fully there. There must be something that's holding me back. Krishna, show me. Krishna, show me what it is. Krishna, surface it and cut it. And I find that he will very, very consistently. That if we ask that sincerely, he will. And it can be quite surprising. The, the doubts and the weeds that Krishna has shown me that were disguised as bhakti were, were very 
very surprising to me. There were things I, I didn't at all expect, and they were shocking. And talk about humility. It was like, whoa. <laughs> uh, so, yeah. Yeah, of course, it, it's not black and white. One can have 90% faith and 98% faith and 99% faith. But then there comes to be a time, like here, where Vidura is saying all. All my doubts have now been removed. There's no uncertainty remaining. Arjuna says this in the 10th chapter. And I mean, look, we shouldn't be hard on ourselves. It took Arjuna until the 10th chapter. Where he says, now all of my illusion has been destroyed. So I hope that helps. We can take one more and then I do have to go. Oh, can I ask a question? Okay, go ahead. Go ahead, bro. Okay. Um, I really... Liked, uh, caught me by surprise actually uh, using stories to remove doubts but you had that experience with that Mataji with Govardhan Leela which yes. you know were and um, and I had that experience also I remember once telling some lady that didn't have much faith in Krishna consciousness a story and realized at the end of it that she her defenses went down the child came out yes, she identified yes. something in the story and exactly. suddenly you know she's accepted something that would have taken me months or years to get across yes. you know philosophically yes. so but, but the, the one other thing comes to mind, you know, your other point about hearing from someone you respect or have faith in, um, of course, guru, but uh, when someone is coming from a plane of experience and not just a theoretical, you know, they're like philosophical discourses are often theoretical. Mm. But, but if somebody is actually having some experience, that uh, oftentimes is perceivable by others. Yes. So someone's genuinely happy or genuinely had, you know, situated in faith themselves or they, they have a, a, a realization, that translates much better than theoretical, you Absolutely. know, intellectual. Absolutely. Well, Gorgo Vindemara said a real sadhu never speaks theoretically. And we're enjoying not to speak above our level of realization. I mean, not only should we be conscious of the level of qualification of the audience, but we have to be very conscious of our own level. I think it was President Obama who was asked a question once and said, that's above my pay grade. And I, I think that each of us has to be conscious of topics that are above our pay grade. Of course, having said that, I think all of us who teach and treat have the experience that sometimes we get the experience while we're teaching. That something that we didn't know and we didn't realize and we didn't have experience of, that someone asks a question and all of a sudden it's right there for us. And, and I recently had this happen in a very interesting way at 26th Avenue in New York that I, I, I was talking about that our fear of death and the pain of death is really that we lose our the identity, the temporary identity that we've spent so much time and effort and energy building up. And this one woman in the audience who is fairly new to Krishna consciousness raised her hand and says, when, when someone that we love dies, are we really mourning how we've lost a part of our identity that was in relationship to them? 
And as she said that, I understood it. I experienced it. I, you know, I had an epiphany, as they say. And I just looked at her and said, yes. And it was fascinating to me, after the class, we were taking prasadam together, and she said, as you were talking, I had that realization. She said, I could feel it. I could see it. She said, I had a, a friend who recently died, and I could feel that I wasn't really grieving for her, that I was grieving for the loss of my relationship with her and the peace of my identity that was defined by my relationship with her. I was really grieving for the loss of a part of my, of my false self. And what was interesting is that I picked up on her realization, although she was the questioner and she was the new person and I was the teacher. So sometimes in the course of teaching, we actually gain realization. In fact, I find it to be quite a common occurrence. But yeah, there's, there's a huge difference between somebody speaking theoretically and somebody speaking based on their own experience. I mean, for sure, the reason that Srila Prabhupada was able to bring so many people to Krishna consciousness was that he was living what he was talking about. It was real for him, and it was real for him at every moment. You know, living with his thrill at every moment. I thank you very much, Srila Prabhupada. Jai.